Our reading this morning comes from Romans 8, 14 through 30. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit that you lit Rather, the spirit in you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in our order that we also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who is subjected to it, in hope that the creation himself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to its present time. Not only so, but ourselves, who have, the fir- who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through worldless groans. And and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with all the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, that we might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 8 is, is a Hall of Fame chapter in, in the New Testament. And uh, if last week was um, the mechanics um, of how you change as a follower of Jesus. This beautiful thing has happened. Like Romans 8 begins with this declaration, there's no condemnation. You've been moved out of the category of receiving condemnation. God God is on your side. God is for you. God sees you the way he sees Jesus. And then it describes the change that takes place in someone's life when the Holy Spirit comes into into their life. Like, what, what a thing to even uh, imagine, especially if you're not familiar with, with Christianity at all, to imagine that God's Spirit's going to come and live in you and make you united to God in such a significant way that it's like an entirely new life has begun. And then that, 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 that way of life begins to change you. It changes your mind. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit because what you set your mind on over and over again is what your life is governed by. So if last week the first part of this you know, Hall of Fame chapter was about how we change, then this week uh, is, is, is really helpful to come on the heels, and you, you see it sort of in the train of the argument. This week is how you sustain, or how you maintain, how you stay fully alive to God in the midst of a world with tremendous amounts of resistance. 
A description of the change that God is bringing in the world or bringing in our lives that does not account for suffering is at best bad salesmanship and at worst it is an outright lie. Um, Sometimes you'll be familiar with this, but sometimes Christians can be guilty of talking about life as a follower of Jesus as if they're describing the expansive views from the top of Mount Everest, uh, but they're never talking about the, the brutal and difficult climb, climb to get there. Um, I, 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 I summited the highest peak of my uh, life thus far this, this summer uh, with, my, with my fifth grade son, Elijah. We climbed to the top of several presidential peaks in New Hampshire. Some of you heard me talk about this hike a little bit. But we went to Mount Washington, the highest peak on, on the East Coast. And uh, I was a tiny bit less fit than the other uh, dads and kids in the group, so I was far behind them. Um, so when we got to the top of Mount Washington, you're above the tree line, and it looks like a Mars terrain. Um, and there had been a thunderstorm off in the distance. We've been hiking for six hours, and there had been a thunderstorm off in the distance, felt like the whole time, just slowly creeping up on us. And everyone basically had made it pretty close to safety, ex- except, uh, except for me. Um, I was still working my way. And so... It was like I was on Mars, and then I was on Mars in a thunderstorm. And so it was pouring rain. Um, everything was, so, it was soaked to the bone. I'm like trying to make my way over these boulders, and I can't see three feet in front of me. Have you ever been in a storm that, that you're like, you're in the cloud where the lightning is happening? It was just like wonderful and terrifying. I was like, this is certainly the end. Um, so I make it. I hear a voice calling out my name. It's, it's one of the fit dads in the group, and he's saying, Caleb. Caleb, follow the sound of my voice. And I'm like, how far away are you? I've been doing this for years. Um, we finally, he finally like guides me. I get safely. And like I come through the clouds. And I literally, I couldn't see anything. It was like from here to the wall was this gift shop with like a, a you know, a, 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 a cafeteria with hot pizza in it and people buying shirts. I walk in, there's like families who rode the free trolley up. And they're buying shirts and, like, trying them on in the gift shop. Like, I climbed Mount Washington, and I just want to walk over them soaking wet and desperate red-eyed and be like, you did not climb Mount Washington. I climbed Mount Washington. You rode a trolley. I wanted to tell you that story so that I could say this. (laughs) There are no free trolleys to maturity. And to the full life that God wants for you. Guys, that illustration killed. Am I wrong? (laughs) There are no free trolleys to maturity. Like, we can't have a gift shop faith. Mm, Come on. Amen. Got to get, I know this is part slow. We got to get a little loose. I, I, I am so grateful for the fact that we don't. We can't live on that type of, of empty sentiment. That uh, we, we can't live on uh, a triumphalism that doesn't take re- the realistic world into account. And so, I'm so glad in this Hall of Fame chapter, there's powerful banner declarations. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That you can call Yahweh, who shook the mountains. In, 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 in Exodus, you can call that Yahweh, Abba, Father, the most tender declaration of, of, of intimacy and family relationships. That's, that's so beautiful that it also is like, hey, listen, but here, you've got to set your mind week to week, day to day, moment to moment on the things of the Spirit or you're going to be governed by an entirely different uh, sort of worldview and way of life. 
You have to not just expect change, but expect suffering, expect resistance. Jesus, you will find, is very, very realistic. He's walked up the mountain. He's with his, his closest friends in, in John 16, and uh, he's talking to them about the fact that he's going to leave. And every time he broaches the subject, they can't really handle it. And they're like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? And, and I'm actually not going to read the full passage that we put up there. We'll just go to the second slide. But he's saying a time is coming when you're going to be scattered. I'm not going to be here, and you're going to be broken apart. You're, you're going to leave me. <laughs> you're you're going to flee as good as things are. And I want you to remember that I told you these things. I want you to remember that I was realistic with you. I've spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. I mean, amen to the end for sure. I'd love to skip some of the middle, but it's there. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In in the narrative of the scriptures, we know that resistance to walking with God is going to come in, in, in various forms. Um, there, there's an inward struggle that we, that we deal with. Like the, the walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Um, Romans 7 unpacks this quite, quite a bit. There's an internal struggle going on. Like we, we, we don't live up to our own standards many times, let alone God's standards. And we're, we're, there's sort of psychological tension in our lives because what I want to be, that's not how I'm living. And there's an internal struggle with temptation, with, 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 with rival gods, with rival views of life, with keeping myself in the center. There's also outward opposition, right? We, we, we live in a city um, that the, 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 the primary messaging is not like, here's how you walk with Jesus. All of you, all of you know this. You go, you go to work, you ride the train. The messages and the stories and the pattern of life that we hear over and over again, many times it feels like a strong opposing force to walking in step with the Holy Spirit, to walking in the way of Jesus, to living in the kingdom of God. There's also spiritual hostility, <laughs> The way the enemy of our souls is characterized in in the scriptures over and over again is as an accuser. We have spiritual hostility in the world, an internal struggle, outward opposition, spiritual hostility. The sort of shorthand for this in the scriptures is the flesh, the world, and the devil. That you're going to have profound resistance. You're not living in a neutral world. You're, You're living, right, we say this all the time, contested space, internally, externally, from spiritual forces. So if Romans is going to say, here's the banner declaration over your life, you're united to God. You're full of God's spirit. You're sons and daughters. His spirit's testifying. It also has to say, now here's how you think, and here's how you're not surprised when suffering and resistance comes, and here's how you endure. And this, this section in particular is, is here's how you endure. I, I, I want to highlight some of the banner things, uh, what, what I'm going to call for, for just a moment, the unassailable accomplishments of the Holy Spirit that, that, that have been being mentioned in these sentences. These are the, uh, the undefeatable accomplishments of the Holy Spirit in your life when you come into union with Jesus. These, these are beautiful, powerful things. The first is it makes you family with God. Whatever would disqualify you, whatever would keep you at a distance, like when you turn to God, you, you find in the imagery of the prodigal son that he is running to you to embrace you, that he stops you in the middle of your prepared speech about how you're going to be better next time and just fully embraces you and gives you, gives you mercy and grace and, and salvation and calls you family. And then that same spirit teaches you to talk with God like family. 
The way it begins is the Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit that you are a child of God. It teaches you to use intimate language for God, to begin to know that your conversational life with God doesn't have to be postured or full of specific religious rhetoric, that it can be uh, as honest as a child crawling into the lap of, 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 their, of their father who loves them and wants to be with them, that, that God wants you to be around even if you're distracted. The Spirit makes us family. The Spirit teaches us to to speak like family. And then the Spirit gives us our most important reminders in our inner being. It does. It gives us conviction. It gives us correction. It reminds us of the things God has has spoken. The person of the Holy Spirit. These are incredible. Honestly, you can't meditate on those things enough. The Word of God is true beyond your moods, beyond your circumstances, beyond what you carried in this morning. It is from everlasting to everlasting. And so... You can't meditate enough on the unassailable accomplishments of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, we get into this this reality. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. What does that mean? Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. This is one of the... The beauty and the challenges of a passage like Romans. It's like there's no condemnation. You're utterly and completely sealed by the Holy Spirit that testifies that you're children of God. And yet it's like you have all these things if you suffer with him. Why is it if there? If I suffer with, so if I don't, I'm not in. Like, oh, like that's how my, my, my like sort of anxious heart is like, so how much exactly do I have to suffer to make sure I'm in and sealed and secure? What's being described here is something that is so beautiful that I want to put in front of our imaginations for us to collectively honor. And that is that we have an incredible inheritance in God. This passage is is describing what it means to share, fully share life in Christ. And the first image is that you are an heir. I don't know how often in a given week you think about your life in those terms, that you are an heir of God, that you are co-heirs with Christ, right? One of the hardest things or the easiest things for us to get and the most challenging things for us to remember on a daily basis as sons and daughters of God is that we are that, (laughs) is that God sees you the same way he sees Jesus. That's the powerful good news of the gospel. And yet it's so easy for us to imagine God sees us like we see ourselves or like we imagine other people see us and to forget that we are truly his children. There's, it's, it's also like, like I, I we talk about messaging in here a lot and, and the, the rival sort of worldviews and rival gods that are out there, rival messages that we hear. You don't hear a ton of stories in our, in our world. Like there's sort of like actually like a sentimental swing back in some of the new sitcoms that are out about like friendship is good. Remember this? And like, let's take care of one another. This is us and a million little things and those kind of shows. There's like a swing back to like sentimental fa- family, family life. But more often than not, what I, what, what, what I, I see people, he, the stories we're hearing are like Succession, this HBO show that's, um, you know, the top of the charts right now. I'm not pastorally recommending it to you. But it's about this family uh, that, that's tearing one another apart. Um, they're, they're, they're coming apart at the roots. They're trying to control one another. They're trying to get at the family business. They're trying to get at wealth and prestige. And so over and over again in subtle and in explicit ways, we hear this reinforced message that at base everyone is really out for themselves. And so we're like, is God going to be like that? Are we his heir in that way? Like if we don't. Like, make him angry right at the end, we'll still be in the will. 
It's not, not just the stories we hear, it's the leaders we, we see over and over again, right? We've seen far too many times those in power in our country get to a place where they feel an, entitled to pursue their appetites with no regard for the promises that they've made to us or, 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 or to, the, to the public. And lust wins out over love over and over and over again. Like, is that the type of family we're in where we're, we're good for now, but if something better comes along... But we know also it's the pain we experience. It's not just that the problems are out there somewhere. Our own personal pain speaks to the reality that it is possible to do family life in an inherently selfish way. To be in relationship by title, but not to experience love and intimacy and real sharing. Sometimes I think it is a struggle for us to believe that we are heirs of God. One of my favorite reminders for myself is in Luke, is in Luke 12. And it's this, it's this phrase, um, Jesus is teaching his, his, his followers, like, here's, here's the things that are going to come at you to, to make you question the, the, the good-hearted, fathering nature of God to take care of you, that God is a good shepherd, that God wants to provide for your needs. And say, don't worry about your life. Don't try to add to your life in these false ways. And he says, because your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is so glad to have you as an heir. So don't worry, don't be afraid. What you have is sealed up by the Spirit and the person of God. So trying to be really simple this morning. Um, what does it look like to be an heir of God and co-heirs with Christ? It means our purposes, our concerns, our future. Our purposes, our concerns, our f- future have been united to Jesus' purposes, concerns, and, and future. That begins to become our vision of life. It begins to become how we intend to live in a practical way. And it begins to become the pattern of our actual behavior. So you are an heir of God, and that is beautiful. But that also means that you're going to suffer with Jesus. John 16, 33 again. I've spoken these things to to you so that you will have peace. I'm promising you peace, but I'm also promising you trouble. You will have trouble. So you will suffer with Jesus if you are united to Jesus. And we, we have to hear this. Um, I, I want to say a couple of just statements about that. Basically, you're going to suffer no matter what. And you already knew that before you got here. But we're eternal spiritual beings living in a temporal limited space. And we're running up against those types of resistance that I described earlier all the time. And so you're going to suffer because you are not in control. You're going to suffer in the world in ways that are outside of your control. And you knew that before you got here. Things happen in the world and the majority of it, no matter what we've heard or tell ourselves, we we don't have control over. So you're going to suffer because things happen to you that you do not control. We've just been as a church through some tremendously difficult examples of that in the world. But here's the thing. You're also going to suffer because you are in control. You're going to suffer over the things you have direct responsibility, direct responsibility for. There are areas of life that you are in control of, and you're going to mess those up. You're going to, we're going to experience failure. Those forces of resistance that are at work inwardly, outwardly, spiritual hostility, they're going to cause us to fail in significant ways and to suffer because of those failures relationally, in our integrity, in our commitments. So we suffer in ways because we're not in control. We suffer because we are in control, and we suffer because the world has real brokenness in it. We don't have a neutral playing field. Given time, things break, they rust, they fall apart. 
Love takes work. It takes self-denial. Any of you who've been in a real relationship know that. So the question is, if we're all going to suffer no matter what, in a sense, like you can't get rid of that first part. Even if you're like, I chuck God out of my consciousness and out of my picture, you're still going to experience suffering. Now you're just going to experience it without God. So Romans is coming to us and saying, listen, the resistance is real. The struggle is, is difficult. Will you suffer with Jesus? That is the key difference in, in this passage. You can suffer with Jesus, and that, that makes all the difference. That's what it means to live as an heir. Our purposes, our concerns, our future are united to Jesus' purposes, concerns, and future. So when we suffer this resistance in the world, we suffer it with Jesus. It means that our suffering is connected to God's purposes in the world and God's potential in our midst. So even when we're standing there in a hospital room, as the, as the, the beeps get slower and the flat line comes, and, and we're standing around looking at each other, and we're dazed, and we're suffering. We're suffering death the same way everyone in our world wrestles with that. But we're suffering with Jesus when we remember that his purposes have come against death in the world, and that ultimately he's, he's bringing about a resurrection. And so we can grieve with those without hope. Now, if you believe that in, in a seminary kind of way or in, in a gift shop faith kind of way, that's one thing. But when you stand, right, you look in the eyes of a parent who's just lost a child, or, or you sit there as your own family member passes away, and you're like, what can I sing here? What can I say here? What can I believe here? If you want to suffer with Jesus, I promise you he'll be there and he has resources because he's walked through it. In every way that we have experienced being human in this resistance, he has as well. To suffer with Jesus really does make all the difference. But then there's this statement that snaps us in the face, I think, when, when we hear it. This passage says, in fact, <coughs> the glory that you share with Jesus makes the suffering that you're going to experience not even worthy to be compared. <laughs> that there's such a categorical difference between what you have in union with Jesus to, compared to what you suffer that it's not even be, worthy to be compared. Now, so often that feels like that doesn't fit in the moment of re- real existential crisis or real palpable grief or pain or, 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 you know, for people who are experiencing persecution, how can you come and say, well, one, time, one day by and by, what you're going to get in God. No, it's saying the glory that you have is not even worthy to be compared with the suffering. It doesn't even belong in the same category. Do we, do we believe that? Do you know that you, ha- you will also share the glory that Jesus has? I want to I break that down for just a, just a moment with three words that start with R. So, I mean, you remember the illustration before, and now these points are alliterated. I mean, this sermon is an all-timer. We're doing great together, don't you think? What does it mean to share the glory of Jesus with him? What, what, what does that mean? The first R word is resurrection. <laughs> it, it, it means that in some in a substantial way, when the Spirit comes crashing into our lives and, and we're forgiven and healed and brought into the family of God, that, that we share in his death and then our old way of life, it goes away. But we also share in his resurrection. We come alive in a, in a fundamentally new way. And I know, and I know you know this, but th- this is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So we have a share in his resurrection. We also have a share in his world being renewed. We talk about this all the time. This is our mission as a church, to join God in the renewal of all things. One of the most uh, sort of chilling 
conversations that I've ever read in literature is in the Brothers Karamazov. And these two brothers are talking about the pain that we experience, the suffering that we go through. And, and whatever else God is doing in the world, how, how, how could it possibly be worth it with all the pain that we experience? And then uh, Dostoevsky puts in the mouth of this really skeptical brother one of the most beautiful pictures of renewal um, that I come back to over and over. I sort of warm my heart at this fire. That God has, is bringing resurrection, that God is bringing a renew wor- renewed world. This is what Ivan says in that book. He says, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice our hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that, ha- that they've shed, something so great that it will make it not just possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Can you believe in a renewal that large? It comes sweeping into our lives through resurrection, but then we become a participant in that renewal in God's purposes in the world. And you know what? There's, there's powerful communication about reward in the New Testament. That's the third R word if you're tracking with me. Reward. So often we think about the wrath of God is like God's frustrated and angry and storming around heaven and, and furious flying off the handle at people who are, who are sinning. A lot of times actually the, the, the anger of God gets expressed in passivity in the world. Essentially like the, bad des- the, the, the false malformed desires and the lifestyle that, that flow out of them in our life, they have their own reward. Basically sin has its own punishment for us in so many ways, right? This, this right... Like, you just you pull, pull one out of the hat. Like, this addiction to pornography, like, really begins to, to, to dampen my c- connection to, to uh, uh, other people. It begins to affect my, 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 my sexual life. It begins to affect how I relate to people. Like, there's all these things that are inherent consequences with putting this thing that, that is trying to, to it's, it's an idol. It's trying to meet a, a deep need that God has put in your life out of your own resources, without taking God into account, and it begins to, 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 to cave in on itself. But the reality is, a holy life also has its own reward. The, the growth, uh, we've been talking about this over and over again in this Roman series, right? Many of us know the grace of being forgiven for the same sins over and over again, and that grace is there, and thank God for it. But many of us don't yet know the grace of living a sustained holy life, and that grace is even more and, the, and the, the life of union with Jesus, full of joy, vibrant, creative, imaginative, literally defined by love, is the best life in, in the world. And when you live a holy life, the reward of that holy life is present right now. It's like the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's not like one day the scales are going to be weighed and you're going to be given, a, you know, like so many blocks on the streets of gold because of how you behaved. No, the reward is now and the reward is then. Like the best really is yet to come and yet the magnificence of intimacy and love and trust and purpose and vocation and, 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 and making things that contribute to the good in the world in step with the Spirit of God. It's reward. <laughs> Resurrection, a renewed world, and reward. And then there's this bizarre stuff that I kind of want to get into, but I'm not going to. There's some thrilling, though mysterious, things about the potential reward. Like the, the imagery of the New Testament about what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth is wild. We're going to be judging angels. Get into that. Ruling in some way. Uh, the, 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 anyway, I, just let's, you look into it. I'm going to keep going. 
So the question is, can we be those who suffer well because we know that we have a share in this resurrection, full participants in this world being renewed, and there, there is the reward of the holy life. I remember when we started raising support for this church, and I had like a, a you know, PowerPoint deck and went around and talking to people about the, the, the demographics of Brooklyn and the spiritual statistics and what we were going to do and how we were going to change everything. And just with th- you know, three years of donations from you, this thing is just going to take off and no more problems. It's like very, very like gift shop based faith uh, presentation. You know what I never said? I just want to start a church that will help people suffer well. It's actually a really beautiful calling in the world. If we all know 100% guaranteed that we're going to suffer, that the person next to you is probably fighting some really significant battle that they would love you to know about and love to have other people sort of get under the weight of it with with, with them and, and walk with them, that that's such a beautiful thing to know that the resurrection power of God wants to come to bear on this person's real suffering in their life and to do that with Jesus in the Jesus community by the body of Christ, to suffer with him means that we're, we're in each other's suffering. I keep thinking of Patrick's grandma's statement, right? When we share one another's burdens, it makes the burden less. And when we share one another's joy, it makes the joy more. That's a powerful way to live. If you know every single person in Brooklyn is going to suffer, and Jesus is coming along saying, I want to help you suffer well together so that you... You're constantly remembering the share of glory that you have together. I wish I could go back and say, yeah, we want to start a church that's going to help people suffer well. It's been a lot of what we've done. Suffering in an age where things are supposed to just be getting perpetually better. It's like not a super popular message. It's hard to raise funds on that one. Suffering in the age of progress. I was thinking about that. What does it mean to live in union with Christ as if that's better than anything the world could possibly offer? I think that's what it means to have substantial hope in God's kingdom. I want to be honest with you. Um, a lot of our primary desire is to avoid pain. And that's so normal, like to run from suffering. I don't know how many of you, how many of you speak Enneagram? Super hot Christian trend right now. You're going to want to get into it. You're going to want to read the road back to you to introduce you to this personality type that's like so much better than Myers-Briggs. Uh, it's better than even Strength Finders. Uh, really holistic. Looks cultish, but it's not um, on the cover of the books. Anyway, I'm an Enneagram type 7. That means nothing to you if you don't know it. But, whoo, come on, Tim. You, you too? Let's get together and overeat, buddy. Enneagram type 7, primary desire to avoid pain. Cool. You sh- when you hear your Enneagram number, you're supposed to be embarrassed. It's like, oh, that's not me. I'm going to go eat something. Um, they, the 7 is the person who, like, who, who can't, uh, they're at the restaurant and they're like, I want to get each of these three things so I can have half, uh, you know, a quarter of each one. Maybe we can just start a food club and you get this and you get this and then we'll all share, you see? That could be cool. Primary desire to avoid pain. 
What I have to keep coming back to, I think what our world has to keep back, coming back to in this sort of myth of progress that we're living in the middle of, that things are just, we're just gonna keep solving the problem until our, 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 our lives are perfect, right? That's the rhetoric that we hear or something close to it. Is we need a vision that, that sustains and creates passion. And I mean passion according to the Latin definition, that, that passion is what you're willing to suffer to see something accomplished. What are you willing to endure to see the vision of life that you're living in accomplished? And is that vision big enough to sustain the suffering that you're going to endure? We talk about this in, in different terms all the time. God designed the weight of your soul. And when you put something at the center of, of your life that, that, that doesn't fit with God's design for the weight of your soul, then your soul begins to crush that thing, and it fundamentally disappoints your life. And we can be discipled by that disappointment so that we lose our passion and we're not willing to live with a forward-looking vision. What the New Testament is trying to, to, to unfold for us, this vision of life united to Jesus that's worth enduring for, suffering for, It will make our lives better, and certainly in the, in the long run, but it will also mean that we have to go through some really, really painful, difficult things. And for the most part, I'm talking about suffering like things that are just going to happen to you. Most of us haven't tasted very much at all the suffering that comes with being united to Jesus. Suffering that comes because of our being united to him, because there's, there's resistance, right? There's embarrassment, right? Embarrassment threshold. Like there are, there are brothers and sisters really, and, and do these statistics mean anything to our hearts? Like they're dying because they're united to Jesus and place us all over the world. And we don't, we don't experience that and we prefer not to think about it. So it's sort of, sort of like, you know, I'm short on my, my, my rent this month and I'm suffering with Jesus. But what would our lives look like if we were living so committed to the, to the, to the vision of the way of Jesus in the world that we started to actually experience some resistance to that? You know, there seems to be a lot of joy in the New Testament when that happens. Like the first time the disciples get absolutely pummeled for being united to Jesus, they like run out of the place bleeding from their eyes saying, yes, we are thought worthy to be united to Jesus. Like what type of, that is not hallmark gift, gift shop type faith. That's something real, something substantial that could say, I'm willing to take a punch in the face. I'm willing to be, to be beaten, right? Like this is the heritage of those who follow, follow Jesus. And, and you need to start where you are. Some of us have no, no resistance from being united to Jesus because nobody knows. But maybe that's a place to start. I, I want to be united to Jesus in the, in, the, in the real ups and downs of my life. I want, I want people to know that I'm okay being united to Jesus because I think it's worth it. It's a powerful thing. C.S. Lewis says, uh, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the cas casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, un impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It is to open yourself up to pain. And it is worth it. You came in here this morning knowing that you were going to suffer. The invitation of this is to suffer with Jesus by the power of the Spirit. For Jesus, this was true. At his most crucial moment, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, something got him up from that, from that posture of prayer. 
Something got him up from saying, God, please let this cup pass from me to being willing to walk down right up to those who had come into the garden to arrest him with the torches and the weapons and say, here I am. And it says in Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That there was some joy connecting, connected to being the redeemer of you and you and you and me and, 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 and people from every ethnic group in the world. There was something connected to winning those people into the family of God that got Jesus up off the ground where he was sweating drops of blood and said it's worth it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is set before your life that you're willing to endure for? The way it's described in Romans 8 is, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So I want to tell you the last thing as we're going to go to the table is I think two essential things that are found in this passage that you need to to endure. Two essential things that you need to suffer well and not lose your hope, not lose your love, not lose your life. The two essential things that are found in, in, in this description of how to suffer well is to pray with the Spirit and to know God's promises will never fail. Those two things will be significant anchors to your endurance in life. And I want to talk about each of them for just a moment, I promise. To pray with the Spirit. Like, I love that the description of, pr- of prayer in this, in this passage is so helpful, right? It's not shooting off a sentence or two, letting God know what's up with you. It's like the very Spirit of God that's connected to the heart of God lives in me. And that Spirit knows the reality of our world. And don't, you know what it says it does? It groans, Here's a realistic picture of prayer, to groan. To learn to pray in the Spirit means to bring all of life, all that you can express, and even the joy and the pain that's beyond expression before God. That entire bandwidth of life, to bring it before Him in conversation, in pleading, in silence, in singing, in pouring out in a journal, in listening, in in waiting, in joining together in songs with other people, in letting someone speak a prophetic picture of, like you need... To learn to pray in a more full way than you ever have. To pray with the Spirit means to groan with God. To groan for the redemption that God's bringing in the world and to be united to that. To unite our hearts to God's perspective. That's what the groaning of the Spirit does. So groaning is to unite our hearts to God's perspective. And intercession It's to stand in those gap places between the declarations God has said are true in the world and our actual experience and to pull them together in prayer. Intercession is to say, I want to see something of the kingdom of God birthed in this person's life and I'm going to contend for them before God in prayer. I want to see something new, like a wedge breaking into this systemic injustice in our city and I'm going to be before the throne of God trying to pull those realities together in prayer. That we groan in prayer and we intercede in prayer. We're trying to birth new things of the kingdom of God. That's what intercession is is doing. And do you know that that's that's the authority that human beings were given, made in the image of God in in, in Genesis and creation, is to be co-creators. Now we're co-heirs and and we're meant to co-create the things of the kingdom in the world with God. How? Groaning in prayer and interceding. To partner in accomplishing God's plans. How are you going to endure you got to learn to pray in the Spirit, with the Spirit. And then you have to know that God's promises never fail. The short word in this passage that that's 
that's given for that is hope. That you're hoping for things you don't see yet, but you know God's word is more true than your mood. God's word is more true than your circumstances that you're in right now. God's word is more true than the strongest resistance that you could possibly feel internally, outwardly, or from spiritual forces. God's word never fails. It will not return void. It will not fail to accomplish what it's been sent out for. To know God's promises never fail means that you know the unlimited potential of God to work all things for good. Right, this is the like, this is the t-shirt verse from this chapter. God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This is my dad's life verse. My dad's story is, is um, where are we at time-wise? How much of his biography should I give? Okay, not much. Um, <coughs> my dad was full of life. He was a hilarious dude. He was a chain-smoking southern car salesman. Fill in that picture in, in your mind. Um, you're like, oh, okay, this, I'm connecting things now. Um, he, he, had, he had a late conversion to Christ, and he, uh, he went with these, like, sweet, khaki, tucked-in shirt, Baptist guys that were so unlike him on this trip to Moldova to build a church uh, right after he came to faith in Christ. And he got there, and like I think the, the theme verse for the, for the trip or something must have been Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Because they got there, and none of the materials are there for this church to be built. They've, they've flown across the world. They land in Moldova. We're here to build the church. There's nothing so they put my dad, because he's got some business savvy or he's sold some used cars or whatever, in a sidecar with this Russian translator named Igor. And they send him into to, to downtown Moldova, and my dad helps negotiate and, and smoke cigarettes and, and basically like negotiates for all the materials for this church to be, to be bought on the black market. And they buy them, and they come, and they build this church. And my dad comes back, and he's like, you're not going to believe it. All things work together for good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. We built this church. We didn't have it. And he basically, like, from that trip, developed a business model. Um, and he started importing from Moldova, and then eventually imported from the whole. So his entire life was changed from this one trip to, to, to build this church. And he just kept coming back to that theme over and over again. God works all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. He named his company 828. <laughs> international trading and they started with pottery and rugs when we were as a family like unloading the the, the pottery and it was all broken so we just did rugs after that <laughs> in the last 20 years of his life he built this this huge huge company that had been his lifelong dream and since he'd always sort of struggled in different sales jobs we made huge fun of him because he just bounced between sales jobs for his, for his whole life. He sold used cars. He sold diamonds. He sold, he sold vacuum cleaners. He sold, uh, he sold musical instruments. He sold literally everything. There's a stack this high in my mom's house of the business cards. And then he finally connected to his purpose when he began to unite his life to Jesus. And he began to, to, to live in a very simple way, his, according to his understanding, that really all things, whatever seems to be happening, is going to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I saw him live that. It had a profound impact on me because I knew him before. So when he has his massive heart attack at 50, I'm sitting in the, in the room with him. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if he can hear me. I sat there with him and I just read Romans 8. And then I read it again. Then I read it again. Like it's something to say like, 
I got this new business that came from this mission trip and, and, and it's growing really well and we're doing really well and it's sort of my dream to say all things work together for good to those who are called. And then to, to sit there while this guy's like, you know, the tubes are coming out and the, the beeps are getting slower and to read all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. To put that on the headstone, come back to it over and over again. And I want to tell you this, it works in both places. The promises of God really are substantial enough that you can live on them. God has unlimited potential to work all things for good. There, there's you know, threads of that story that I could connect, even from his passing, ways the light of God, the kingdom of God broke into the world through that, that, that are still surprising me. There's unlimited potential for God to work all things for good because there's an unbreakable chain between God first conceiving of the idea and accomplishing it. He will bring it to completion. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the, they might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And, he also prede- and those he also predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is a fantastic verse to fight over in your small group, but essentially it means there's an unbreakable chain in God's redemptive plan that when he calls you by name and he takes hold of your life, nothing has the power to snatch you out. (laughs) The way the promise is said later in the New Testament is, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out. I mean that for you as an individual, and I mean that for us as a people, I mean that for God's covenant with Israel, I mean for what the whole story God's been telling in the world. He who began a good work will be faithful to carry it out. Can you resist that? Yes. Can you make your life thousands of times more painful by running from that and resisting it? Absolutely. Can you sin in such a way that your life is robbed in a significant way of all that it could be? Yes. Let these things encourage you. Can anything remove you from the love and salvation of Jesus once you've been adopted into his family? No. Absolutely not. You're not better at sinning than God is at rescuing. Sorry to say. You can resist it. You can make the journey so much more painful. You you can let your life be robbed in so many significant ways, but you can't snatch yourself out of the family of God, however great you get at sinning. So that's where, that's where we're, we're, we're going to end. Um, for us to endure, I think we have to learn to pray in the Spirit. And that means bringing all of life before God, groaning and interceding, pulling those things together. It also means learning to live on His promises, to know that they have unlimited potential to work things for good, that, that God does. And that, that there's an unbreakable chain from His conceiving and promising to accomplishing. Will we be a part in it? That's the question. Will we, will we share? Will we participate? Will we have life? Let me say this to you, church. You are alive. If you are in Jesus, you are alive to God forever. If you're united to Jesus, you are alive to God forever, sons and daughters. And you are in a world of incredible resistance. It means to be an heir of God is to be locked for now in a struggle with that resistance on a day-to-day basis. We have to learn to pray in the Spirit and with the Spirit. We have to know God's promises never fail. They will make us people of endurance, people who have tasted and seen that glory. 
And they know that there's nothing that's even worth comparing with it in the way of suffering. Let me pray for us. Come Holy Spirit, I pray that you would testify with our spirits that we are your children, that we would call you and cry out to you as Abba. I pray for those who are groaning right now, they're in the type of pain that they can't even fully articulate. I pray they would know that you are with them and that you're groaning that our spirits could be united to your spirit and how we groan, that we could be united to your spirit in, in accomplishing what you want to do in our lives and in the world through, through interceding, through pulling those things together in prayer. I pray for our, our church family, for those who just need to be reminded of your promises and your faithfulness today. Pray we would rest in that. I pray you would lead us right now in each of the ways that we are supposed to respond. Would you prescribe it to us, God, by your spirit? Lead us. Lead us to respond to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I just want to give you a few moments to rest in the presence of God. Our world is remarkably challenging. We will suffer. But we also have a share in incredible glory. Let's meditate on that. Ask God in prayer. God, how would you have me respond to what I've heard? And, and expect that the Holy Spirit will begin to put an impression in your mind of specific things that you need to commit to him or release to him or, or intercede for. The Spirit is speaking. Receive what the Spirit would say to you right now, and then let's respond together. In just a moment, I'll come, in back, come back and invite us to the table together.
for centuries, the followers of Jesus have hung on their walls and prayed towards and wore around their necks crosses. An implement of execution, death. Our baptism is a picture of death. You drown your life with God. The old life drowns and you raise to a new life. The, the meal we're coming to, it's gruesome in, in a sense. It's, it represents the broken body and shed blood of someone. The reason is because the world is so substantially broken that the natural flow is towards brokenness. It doesn't naturally flow towards the kingdom of God, towards the things of God. And so the creator came and let that brokenness break him. We are united to Jesus in his death and united to him in his resurrection. We suffer with him because we want to share, we will share in the glory that is his. But in many ways, we lie to ourselves as we imagine that it is easy. We have to deny ourselves to take up our cross and walk alongside him. We come to this meal to remember his love is extravagant enough to adopt us forever, that we have a family crest in the kingdom of God for eternity, reunited right now to that life. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, as we come to the table, let us remember that we are fully united to Jesus. Some of you, you, you felt prompted by the Spirit to respond in a particular way. We have people that would love to pray with you over anything at all, something good, something bad, something confusing, any way that the Spirit has prompted you, we would love to pray. We're gonna come and receive this meal, be nourished by the love of God, and we're gonna worship. Heavenly Father, bless the bread, bless the cup, bless your church as she comes, and may we be nourished by your love. May we respond as your spirit leads us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as you're ready, come forward and receive the meal.